imagine the chances are that a definite image came to most of your minds there, that of a huge rocket blasting off into space. It's the image indelibly associated with that music by its use in Stanley Kubrick's film 2001 A Space Odyssey. The source of the music is an orchestral tone poem composed in 1896, obviously a long time before space travel, by Richard Strauss. The title is a bit of a mouthful for English speakers. Also sprach Zarathustra, thus spake Zarathustra. The orchestral work is Strauss's response to a huge philosophical poem by Friedrich Nietzsche. Zarathustra is the mouthpiece for Nietzsche's own highly iconoclastic philosophy. Nietzsche liked to see himself as an iconoclast, a breaker of sacred images. After all, this is the man who famously pronounced that God is dead. Nietzsche is one of the great stylists of philosophy. The literary style in his later works is trenchant, witty, terribly readable, and helpfully for us, it's often broken down into short aphorisms, sometimes even just a single sentence. But also sprach Zarathustra is an exception. Perhaps some of you have tried to read the poem, and I stress the word tried at this point. If you failed, you have my deepest sympathy. It's conceived on the scale of a novel and following a similar kind of narrative journey. The verse is highly charged, it's intoxicating, but enigmatic, often deliberately so, as with many of the great religious teachers. It's full of riddles, paradoxes, hard sayings. Trying to understand it is hard work, particularly if you're reading it in translation. So if you're looking for enlightenment into Richard Strauss's huge, complex, and sometimes slightly baffling tone poem, you may have found that in the end you've had to wave the white flag here. The trouble is, Strauss's poem really does cry out for some sort of explanation. It begins, as we've just heard, with one of the greatest openings in the orchestral literature. When I first heard it, I can remember cherishing the constant hope that that tremendous opening might eventually return, or at least that the piece would end with something equally spine-chilling. Instead, Strauss's ending is frankly perplexing. There's a mysterious hush, ethereal high-string harmonies clashing with something rather different in the murky depths. seem to be playing the wrong notes at the end. What they're playing is clearly derived from that majestic motive that we heard right at the beginning of the work. But it's down in the bass, rubbing up uncomfortably against the harmonies above. So how did we get from that magnificent opening to this, and why? That's what I want to try and look at in this programme. 
Strauss always insisted that his response to Nietzsche was free in this work. Now, let's not forget, he was a composer. He's primarily interested in finding inspiration for musical ideas, but the outlines of Nietzsche's philosophy are very helpful in understanding how, in the tone poem, we get from A to a very different kind of B. Well, let's go back to that beginning. What's it about? Can we be that concrete? Well, Nietzsche's poem begins with the sage Zarathustra withdrawing from his home, all his comforts, all that's familiar to him, everything he knows, and addressing a great hymn to the rising sun. Well, that certainly fits this music. of the 
the great longing. The organ, as you'll hear, tries twice to still these desires and longings with the opening phrase of the old Magnificat chant, My soul doth magnify the Lord. But these restless urges won't be calmed. noticed another challenge from the nature motif again. On the trumpet at the end of that passage. After all, desire, longing, all this is very natural. This grows into a tremendous orchestral passage called Of Joys and Passions, and here Strauss's imagination takes flight. But for the man who rejects the consolations of religion, all human joys, passions, longings eventually run up against blunt fact number two, death. Now follows, in Strauss's tone poem, the song of the grave. Now we really begin to feel the tug between two clashing keys. C major, which is the key of that original vision of the glorious consciousness of nature, and B minor, the key of striving, longing, but above all, mortal man. Is there a way out of this conflict after religion? Well, what about science? That's the title of the next section of Strauss's tone poem, Also Sprach Zarathustra. This sounds more positive, certainly at least to the humanists amongst you. But Nietzsche had his doubts about science too, and particularly about the 19th century religion of progress, and these too were shared by Strauss. Science here is depicted as a fugue, which you could say is the most scientific or academic of musical forms. It's certainly very rigorous. The fugue subject begins by taking the three-note nature motif in the deep bass. and by trying to reconcile it with the B minor harmony of mankind. And onwards, increasingly chromatically, tortuously, you might say, as the scientific mind tries to unriddle nature and man.
This fugue continues tying itself in knots, contrapuntally and emotionally, until the nature theme reasserts itself as originally, now with mocking skirls on clarinets. It's as though nature is saying, did you really think you could explain me? Nature reasserts itself with full force of Strauss's huge orchestra and organ. surname was really Polish. 
For Nietzsche, mankind is something to be overcome. On another occasion he wrote, My one consolation is the thought that man might be a transition. The Superman is what might be achieved by the man who is capable of overcoming himself. Now, by self-overcoming here, Nietzsche doesn't mean self-denial as practiced in religions, particularly not in his detested Christianity, but by achieving some kind of inner reconciliation with nature, by facing up to all its glories and horrors, by, as Nietzsche put it splendidly, by saying yes to life. How much did Richard Strauss share that view? Well, it's hard to say at this stage in his career. He had, after all, only just entered his thirties. But he was clearly struck by one of Zarathustra's maxims that the highest, freest kind of thought is thought which can dance. The image of dance turns up again and again in Nietzsche's writing, particularly in Zarathustra. One of the sage's most wonderful sayings is, one must have chaos within oneself to give birth to a dancing star. Nietzsche might have disdained Viennese waltzes, but Strauss revels in the sound of it here. You could call it a kind of cosmic waltz, a stupendous symphonic dance. Strauss sensed what becomes clearer in Nietzsche's later works 
Nietzsche's philosophy is a philosophy of many different voices. On one level, we have the optimist who hymns the coming of the Superman. On another, there's a pessimist who writes how the thought of suicide was the one thing that sustained him through difficult nights. He was a man who could glory in the depth of woe and joy of life, and who hungered for self-knowledge, and yet could also write, there is no guarantee that the truth, when it is finally uncovered, will even turn out to be interesting. Bertrand Russell wrote that philosophy couldn't give us any answers, but it could help us ask better questions. And that's true of Nietzsche's philosophy as much as anyone's, for all his ringing rhetoric. And maybe that's what the more worldly-wise Richard Strauss sensed here. Like Charles Ives's The Unanswered Question, composed ten years later, or maybe like Douglas Adams's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, also, Sprach Zarathustra leaves us with the possibility that the riddle of life, the universe, and everything may, after all, be unanswerable.